Holiday. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be back, man. Dude, your book, Courage is Calling, I love it the most. Part of the Stoic Virtues series. This is book one of the series? This is book one of four. Okay. First time I've ever done something like that. I think we talked about the four virtues before, but if you don't mind, rattle them off real fast and we're going to dive into courage. Courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. The only one that I think people are unfamiliar with is temperance, which basically means self-discipline or moderation, some combination of those two things. But the cardinal virtues are the cardinal virtues of Christianity, of Stoicism, of a whole bunch of different philosophical schools. Um, and so I'm, this is my first attempt at doing a series of interconnected, intertwined books. Why do you think virtues matter? Like what is the, so much has been made of this and like the whole stoic philosophy is around it and much of philosophy, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what virtue is trying, the idea of virtue tries to answer the question of like, how should a person be like, what code should you live your life Mm. by? What sort of standard should you hold yourself to how should you evaluate your behavior what should you stri- what is the mark that you're striving for and what i like about courage temperance justice and wisdom is first off they're all interrelated and impossible to actually separate right like justice uh, is impossible without courage but also uh courage if not in pursuit of justice isn't anything to admire mm. right and so they're all really, and then you take something like wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom is the scariest thing in the world. Why? I would well, not because, have said that. I would have because, said courage is way scarier. Well, I'm, what I'm saying is you need courage to pursue truth because truth challenges us, mm. right? Truth can put us on in the minority of something, right? Truth can uh, force us to see uncomfortable things about ourselves. Um, the, the, the pursuit of knowledge is a journey that most people are afraid to go on, right? They just take what other people tell them or they're... Do you think they're actually afraid to go on that journey or do I they just by down, default? I mean, I think it's it's a default, but what is behind the default? Why don't people pursue things, right? Mm-hmm. And I think fear is obviously a sort of a through line in a lot of people's lives. But I think the idea of the virtues is they're all related to each other, but there's not a single situation of any significance or importance in life that does not call upon at least one of those virtues from us. And so to me, it's sort of like uh, the lodestar of like what direction you're going in life. Okay, have you thought at all about why having, because I think everybody should live by a code. Mm-hmm. Obviously the Stokes do. You, everything that you put out in your book certainly intimates that sure. there's uh, meaning behind that. Do you have a sense of what that foundational sort of axiomatic reason to have a code is? Well, you know, William James talks about, he says, the person you should pity the most in the world is the person who's having to wing it every day. Like the person who's having to decide everything anew. Because of discomfort, poor decision making. Right. Like imagine like you don't have a diet, you don't have a code, you don't have a a set of priorities in your life. You don't have something you're working towards. You don't have a way that you like to do things. Then every single decision you have to think about Mm. consciously, right? As opposed to being able to instinctually know 
or sort of measure against something. So his point is like, you want to make good habits. You want to sort of build these virtues or this code into your life. So you're not spending every, just, just like the person who has to decide every morning, what could I wear this morning? Or what could I wear today? And having to choose from hundreds of things. That, that is not what Steve Jobs does or Obama did in office. Obama had, had, I think, two suits, right? It's like black or blue, and you pick one, right? So I think one of the things that a code does or that the idea of the, the cardinal virtues does is it just narrows down the considerations that you have to weigh or consider in the course of a day. That's not to say it makes it easy because the decisions themselves are still often hard or there's risks involved, but you're not having to way an infinite amount of possibilities. Mm. I also find, and I'm curious to see if this is true for you in your life, I'm distressed by the fact that if somebody were to ask me a question one day and then ask me the same question six weeks later, I might give you a different answer. And one of the answers is better than sure. the other. And so, you know, Ray Dalio wrote the book Principles and his whole sort of thesis is, hey, in life, everything you encounter is another one of these. Yeah. It's another situation where either courage is needed or temperance is needed, wisdom, or just specifics like you handle, like I deal in business a lot, so you handle this particular situation, let's say terminating an employee, this way. And when right. you handle it this way, you know, even though some things are different, that on average, that's going to be the most wise thing. And so his idea is you turn everything into a principle, a way of doing things. And do you does that factor into what you're saying here with the virtues? I think so. Absolutely. You think about like a professional sports coach. They know just like a card player set of probabilities what you do if it's in these different parameters. Because, again, imagine the football coach who's having to consider all the possible plays mm. in each situation. There, you're, you just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do that, right? Especially when your opponent is trying to speed up the game and misdirect you so you make the wrong decision or you make, let's make, sometimes you're making a gut decision and that's correct. Sometimes you're making a conscious decision and that's what's incorrect. But the idea is you sort of set a, a it was funny actually, um, someone once criticized uh, Franklin, Ben Franklin, he had like his 12 virtues. The, again, they fluctuate, but he had 12 virtues. And they said it was like he hemmed himself in in a paddock, like a, a fence they make around on a horse. Uh, they would make around a horse. And then he trotted inside the paddock. And this was their sort of condescending intellectual critique of, of Ben Franklin. But I think that's actually the perfect way to live. Like, here's all the boundaries that I have. Here's the things that I don't do, that I don't think about, that are off the table for me because I consider them immoral or unjust or cowardly or stupid or whatever the thing is. And then here's all the things that I have to worry about. It's a much smaller sphere to consider. And so... I think that's kind of the idea of virtues is is to create sort of a structure that you can live in that guides you so you're not, again, winging it on these critical decisions. Um, and, you know, I, I think about one of the things I talk about in the book is this, you know, you go, but what about me, right? Or what would happen if, right? We ask ourselves, this is how we sort of psych ourselves out of doing things that, uh, you know, don't fit with the code because we're suddenly considering a bunch of other stuff that's actually irrelevant to to like how we've decided to live our mm. life. Yeah, the idea of hemming yourself in, of building that fence, I think makes a lot of sense when you think about virtues in the context of it's not just 
that I'm making decisions easier and that I'm avoiding the mental fatigue of having to pick clothes and things like that, but that it's about a, a life well lived. Yes. And the idea of well lived becomes one of the most important questions anybody is going to answer in their life. And, you know, my initial question for me, as I think about, okay, what's my answer? It's, it's really about suffering. Okay. And I, one of the things that, so I always journal on a guest before they come in, like, what was it I liked about the book, the way they're thinking. And, you know, one of the ideas that I'm asking myself is how much of courage is innate and how much of courage is cultural? Meaning if you, if somebody weren't taught the express virtue of courage, would they not still have a sense of revulsion when they were acting cowardly? And I have a feeling that they would. I have a sure. feeling that nature has given us the virtues from these are the things that keep you alive, that make you a good contributor to a social um, situation. And, you know, these are the things that increased our likelihood of surviving. And so as I think about, OK, there isn't going to be. Um, just total parody that every society through all time will have the same virtues. But I have a feeling that a lot of them are going to rhyme because of that sort of innate suffering that rises up uh, when you think about not acting courageously or going, you know, always with your emotional whims and just somehow your life doesn't add up and you're not able to get where you want. And you see this a lot with, you know, people in their twenties are very impetuous. And then as they get older, they think, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Right. You know what I mean? And, and that, impulse to what am I doing with my life? Even though it was pleasurable, you know, six months ago, you weren't even thinking about it. At some point, there's some subconscious thing that kicks in that just makes you feel uneasy. Yeah. I mean, I think for almost all of human history, courage has existed as a virtue because like, we wouldn't have survived as a species without courage, right? You could say wisdom or justice or uh, temperance. These are I don't want to say sort of uh, uh, modern problems, but they 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 matter uh, they matter less primally than just like can you be brave under pressure under threat, whether it's from a woolly mammoth or an attacking tribe or something like that. So you know when you when you study the history of courage, for most of human history, courage meant like sort of physical courage, mm -hmm. like courage under fire, right? Um, and it's only somewhat recently, you know, last few thousand years that we also had this better understanding of moral courage, right? What one does under pressure, under the threat of a tyrant, you know, the pursuing of truth or uh, of one's own sort of way of living or, you know, being true to oneself. So there, there are these sort of two components to courage. There's physical courage and moral courage. But as I studied the literature and I decided sort of what direction I wanted to take the book in, what really struck me is that the two things, what those two types of courage have in common is that it's about putting your ass on the line in some way, right? And I think there is no such thing as a good life if you don't put your ass on the line. So I think a person who never risks it, who never puts themselves out there, um, even if they're comfort or even if they're comforted, oh, sorry, even if they're comfortable, even if all of their needs are taken care of, at the end of the day, they probably have some nagging sense that more was possible. Mm -hmm. So even in that sense, cowardice sort of dogs us. There's an expression like of cowards, nothing is written because they don't do anything that's notable or, or memorable, right? Um, it's it's hard to put yourself out there, but on the other side of that risk is like good stuff.
dude, that really hit me for some reason, like strangely emotionally, uh, of cowards. Nothing is written. There's so many amazing quotes in your book. Um, and I want to read one that this one, like stopped me dead in my tracks. Um, there is no deed in this life so impossible that you cannot do it. Your whole life should be lived as a heroic deed. Was that you? I can't, I didn't, That's unfortunately, Tolstoy. okay, I, I didn't write down whether it was you or somebody else. That's fucking amazing. It's a great quote. I loved it. He has this beautiful book called uh, Calendar of Wisdom, uh, which is like, his, it's like a favorite quote from him every day and some meditations on it, um, which I Was love. that him speaking through a character or... Uh, I don't that's in a calendar of wisdom okay um but I think I think that's a good way of thinking about your life right which is that um if you think of your life if you live your life as a coward it will be a cowardly unimpressive life but if you live your life as if it matters right like um if you don't believe that you can be heroic or make a difference or do anything in this world you're right in the sense that you will not be that person, right? Like they talk about the great man of history theory. Um, can an individual change the course of history? What we know for certain is that people who don't believe in the great man of history theory are very unlikely to be <laughs> the great man or woman of history, right? So like uh, change, uh, greatness, success depends on, by definition, believing that you're capable of doing it and that you're willing to do it. And so there is a certain, obviously courage is much more complicated than that, but it starts there. Mm -hmm. Like it starts with, if you believe that nothing matters, if you believe that it's all hopeless, that we're all, uh, you know, uh, uh, victims of the system or of circumstance, that it's all about, you know, these structures and forces and that it's impossible and then it doesn't matter. Um, you're right. It's a great quote in the book. Nihilism is cowardice. Yes. Do you remember who said that? General Mattis said cynicism is cowardice. Cynicism. Thank you. And, and it's this. You it's talk this, about nihilism a lot in the yes. book. But sorry, I conflated two things. No, no, no. I think they're they are. Nihilism is just uh, the extreme version of cynicism to me. Again, if you think that it doesn't matter, if it doesn't count, if it's hopeless, um, not only is it unlikely that you'll ever make a difference or change things or, or, or have an impact, but it's also, that's a wonderfully safe place to be. It's sad, right? But it's also freeing because then nothing you do has any significance. Uh, the stakes are extremely low. Uh, nobody's watching. You can't fail. You can't let anyone down. There's no potential to waste or fritter away. And so I think there is courage just in the earnestness of like caring. And I think, I think you and I both see this in the stuff that we talk about. Like you'll hear from people who are like, Oh, this is so lame. Or this is just motivational shit. Right? Like, you know, people who look yeah, down totally. on people who are just earnestly trying to get better mm. and that's not to say that there isn't a certain amount of cheesiness sometimes or that it it, it it's like uh, physics or something you know that's not it's it it's not as rigorous as this that or the other but there is something powerful about earnestly caring and trying 
And I remember Robert Greene, uh, he wrote this in one of his books, but he talked to me about it because it sort of capsulated my teenagers. Like, I didn't really have anyone that believed in me when I was younger. And so I didn't really believe in myself. I was a good runner, um, but I never tried. Like, I, I not only slacked off in practice, I tried to like get away with not practicing. I remember I ran a 502 mile Whoa. in the middle of my senior year. While slacking off? Yeah, I was I was good, right? But I remember thinking if I 502 if I stop here I won't have to feel shitty if I just sort of shrug like if I just shrug my shoulders and go 502 is close to sub 5 then I'm protected from trying and failing God, you know what I mean? Yes, I lived very, my whole life like that. That's yes, a I know very mean. common idea. If you don't try, you can't fail. And if you don't put yourself out there, you can't feel like a piece of shit if you fall short. So there's real there's real courage in the earnestness, in the effort, in trying. Um, and, and I would say as someone who, you know, didn't naturally come to writing or to videos or podcasts or any of the stuff that I do now, public speaking, like it's scary to suck at something at first. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and, and, and like, like a lot of people aren't able to sit with that. So they don't do it. Facts. Dude, you literally just described my twenties. I was. I was haunted by the fact that some part of me knew that I was taking smaller and smaller jobs because I really wanted the person I was interviewing with to look at me and go, God, you're so smart. Why are you applying for this job? Mm. And uh, to live for that moment is so foolish. But to see how many years of my life that need to be thought of as smart right. um, because I didn't want to suck at something. I didn't want to be foolish. I didn't want to face the thought that I may be you know, not as smart as I wanted to be. Um, and it was just it, giving me the life essentially that I deserved based on the choices that I was making, which was one that, you know, left me sort of laying face down on the carpet of my unfurnished apartment, just like spiraling into darkness. When it's harder too, when what you are thinking about doing is a public facing thing, mm. right? Like, uh, making videos or books or whatever, all the music, uh, putting yourself out there, that's like, that's the hardest part, right? To go out for something and be rejected for it. Just as to tell someone how you feel about them or to, you know, decide, hey, I'm going to quit my job and move across the country and do X, Y, or Z. That's, that makes a person so vulnerable. And so, again, the courage to run into a burning building to save someone or to throw yourself in front of a bullet or you know, to stare down, you know, someone bigger and stronger than you. That is courage. And that is what courage has been for thousands of years. But there is also courage in being yourself and taking an unconventional path in trying and failing, right? And trying and failing again over and over and over again. That That is this at the core for my definition of courage is putting your ass on the line. I love that. I want to like really beat to death this idea of earnestness, which was one of the the things that I loved most about the book is the acknowledgement of the thing that not a lot of people put their finger on, which is there's kind of a goofiness and uncoolness to um, believe in heroism and heroic acts. And it's become like passe. And we do take that cynical look. And 
I love that. And I love some of the stories that you tell. Like, dude, the the movie, I'm sure people have seen 300 about the battle at Thermopylae. But the way that you tell it, which, by the way, this book is, I'd be interested to see if you agree with this, one of your mo- more poetic. Thank you. Was that intentional? I, I'm always trying to get better as I write. And uh, I think what I was really trying to do is focus on story in this book because for almost all of human history, how have we instilled courage in people? Mm. It's through story, which actually goes to what you're just saying about um, the sort of the cynicism. So there's a, a great line from one of Theodore Roosevelt's biographers. They said, you know, uh, Theodore Roosevelt grew up, uh, Theodore, as a young man, Theodore Roosevelt read stories about the great men and women of history and decided to be just like them. And the way they sort of phrase it, when I heard it the first time, I actually picked up like a hint of a sneer, right? <laughs> like a, like what a, what a ridiculous person, right? And that was kind of the, like now we sort of th- see Theodore Roosevelt in, in sort of 100 years distant in a bunch of different ways. We, we knock him for the imperialism and some of the racism and, and things like that. But we also sort of, we see him as an inspirational figure, this guy who sort of conquers his asthma and becomes a politician. We see it, we love his energy and his enthusiasm. But at the time, these were like those that was prim- the primary criticism of him, that he like cared too much, that he was uh, he was too energetic, that he was he was a clown. Right. That like he that they mocked him for his sincere commitment to these things, that it wasn't serious and dignified like he was trying too hard. Mm. Right. And for an aristocratic, you know, young man of immense means and and privilege, that's like not gentlemanly, like to have ambition and to care and to try. Um, but I love that. And I love that idea of like, yeah, if you read about the people of history and you don't think I want to be like them, what that's not to make you cool. That makes you a loser, like by definition to me, right? Like, so I love the idea of like, no, I actually like, I actually care and I actually believe in this stuff. Like these, the the characters in my books are not like, are not just like words on a page. Like I, I, I admire and am fascinated with and like it, these people are sort of swirling around in my head and my heart and they guide me and inspire me and challenge me and also serve as cautionary tales too. But just the idea that like life has meaning, that you matter, that you can make a difference, that history is not just a parade of shitty people and crimes and awfulness and hypocrites, that we are making progress and that things are getting better and that it's getting better because people were courageously committed to ideas and ideals and risked themselves and their reputations to try to make those things more real. I want to get back to 300, but first I have a quote uh, that goes with exactly what you just said, um, which I think is really extraordinary. It's long. Bear with me. This is you. The existential vacuum that began in the 20th century continues to suck us into its dark maw. Religion, patriotism, industry, each day, collective belief in these pillars of humanity weakens. Just look at what we tell ourselves about history. Do we choose to see ourselves as the latest descendants in a long line of ancestors who have been struggling valiantly against the odds towards a better world? Or are we the bastard children of irredeemable racists, pillagers, and monsters? Are we the future of humanity? Progress? 
or are we the plague upon this earth? Yeah, I mean, take someone like Thomas Jefferson, right? Um, when you really study Thomas Jefferson, he was awful. Like he owned not just a few slaves, but a lot of slaves. He impregnated those slaves yeah. and therefore owned his own children, which he did not free from slavery. He tricked uh, uh, Sally Hemings to come to Europe with him, telling him that he would free her when they got back, which he then didn't do. Um, all of which to say is that they're and it goes without saying that their relationship was impossibly uh, uh, corrupt and broken because he owned her as a person. So you could say that all their, you know, sort of interactions are are forcible and, and uh, you know, consent is impossible. Awful. He said, you know, of slavery, he said, I tremble for my country when I realized that God is just. Like he knew that slavery was a horrendous, unspeakable evil, and yet did nothing, right? He didn't free his slaves. Washington's the only founder that frees his slaves. They all found slavery to be morally contemptible and challenging, and yet none of them did anything about mm -hmm. it. So when you study someone like Thomas Jefferson, and we hold up as this great American, when you really look at it, it like, it breaks your heart. You're like, fuck this guy, right? <laughs> But also, he writes, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So what are you going to, when you look at someone like Thomas Jefferson, I guess what I'm saying is the nihilist view is that all these people were hypocrites. They all sucked. Uh, it's all meaningless. It was all based on a lie. And I definitely get why there are activists. We're getting a little bit of injustice. I get why there are activists and historians who dedicate, who look so narrowly at this that it's hard not to become a cynical nihilist, right? Um, and yet, what Thomas Jefferson writes down is also what Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King use his own words to take the country from where it was in 1776 to where it was in 1865, to where it was in 1965, to where it is now. And so I guess, and I think about this now that I have kids, and I think about this in this racial reckoning we're in, we have to decide, are we going to take the easy path out, which is to say that it's all hopeless, it's all awful, it's all fruit from the poison tree, or are we going to say, and, and Ralph Ellison says this in Invisible Man, which is one of the great... Uh, great novels of the 20th century, he says, you know, you can love the ideas, but not the men who created the ideas. And I think, again, it's easy to, to dismiss it all. It takes courage to say, no, like, I actually believe in this. And I actually believe in it more than Thomas Jefferson did. And I believed in it more than the generation after and after and after. And then I'm going to fight and it's worth sacrificing for and it's worth committing to to help make them a little bit more real. Damn. I cannot wait to read your book on justice. Sounds like this is going to be interesting. I, and I totally agree, man. Look, to me, frame of reference is everything. And it, it is very easy to look at the past and see only horrible things. And I'm sure if I looked at, to bring this um, back around to the guys at 300, that if I looked at who they were in real life, I'd be mortified to my fucking core. But... There are ideas to your point. You know why the Spartans were so yoked and, and like good at fighting? It's because the Spartans existed as a warrior culture. And then there was uh, basically a secondary race called the Helots who did all the other work, 
right? Like it was a slave, it was a military slave society mm -hmm. in which slaves did all the work so the guys could uh, train all the time and be the greatest warriors ever, right? And so, yeah, when you get, when you dig into it, you can, you can cut it up in so many pieces that it becomes impossible to see anything of any significance or meaning. Um, so are you going to do that as an excuse to not have to care, to not have to try, to not have to risk yourself? Or are you going to look at the incredible sacrifice and heroism that these 300 guys and a bunch of their slaves marched out and faced down probably the worst odds in the history of warfare and succeeded in the sense that they knew they would die but their objective was to buy time which they paid for with their lives dude that that is such a, a big idea i've never heard anybody talk about it but the way that we slice it up the way that we look at it is going to determine what we take from it is going to determine our inspiration is going to determine how we act in fact oh god you say something in the book uh, i probably wrote it down but it would take me too long to find the idea being that ultimately your beliefs inform your behavior and therefore like what you decide to believe it was like oh god your beliefs become your virtue oh i'm gonna have to fucking look this up can you well, vamp Peter, and bias time if you know what i'm talking about roughly yeah peter Thiel talks about effective truths right so if you don't believe something's possible it's not possible of course just because you believe something is possible doesn't mean that it is but it starts of course with the belief but i thought that idea was really powerful that what matters are your behaviors but what is it that gives birth to your behaviors it's ultimately your beliefs and as we you know, right now, what I feel like we're living through with social media and the the way that ideas can spread so quickly is this becomes a framing device. And when you look at um, there, there are like debating tactics where it's like if you can control the frame of the argument, then you can frame the argument in a way that you can win it. Yeah. And so this is this is sort of the crazy making thing that happens on the Internet is people can shift the focus of an argument to something. And if you don't challenge the very sort of framing of what we're talking about, then you you know, you get into something that isn't productive, that doesn't help. And so what you're talking about now with your 300 example of, yes, you could look at that and just be mortified to your core, but then you also miss the opportunity to look at this other thing, this courageous act, this thing that we should all aspire to. Well, you take someone like Winston Churchill, right? And it's be kind of become, he's for a long time been sort of the hero of the 20th century. This is the guy who stares down the Nazis. Does he also contribute to a famine in, uh, in the Middle East? Uh, does he, uh, not support Gandhi? Uh, does, is he, uh, for much of his career, like, let's say, opposed to female suffrage? A whole bunch, was he maybe an alcoholic? Yeah, like, da 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 da, -da all true, right? Um, and so you can focus on that, and, and you should focus on it in that it is, insofar it is true, and to deny that it is true is to reject the, the virtue of wisdom, right? So when people go like, the Civil War wasn't about slavery, like, that's not what we're talking about. You don't get to stick your head in the sand and deny that facts are facts. But you have to decide what facts are you going to take and integrate into your understanding of the world and what your imperative as an individual is. And so what I think, say, Churchill is a wonderful example of is and I talk about him in the intro of the book. He says, look, destiny taps us on the shoulder. And he says, 
it would be a shame if in the moment of your potential finest hour, you weren't ready or you rejected it. Now, were there little moments where he did reject opportunity to be even greater than he was? Absolutely. And I think we should talk about that. Why was he so afraid of someone like Gandhi? Why did he have regressive beliefs about X, Y, and Z? And let's also look at the penalties he paid for those. When, when Winston Churchill gets basically kicked out of public life for like 10 years leading up to the Second World War, it's because of his failures on these issues. Um, but when the Nazi menace is staring him down, when tyranny has overrun Europe and a generation of British leaders has appeased it and appeased it and appeased it, uh, Churchill says no. Like Churchill says like, this isn't right. Churchill says, you know, I think we should fight to the very end. Um, his 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 daughter-in-law asked him, and it's a th and every time I think about it, uh, I get chills. She says like, well, what do we do if, if they land? I remember this quote in the um, book. You know, what do we do if they come? And he says, what's stopping you from going into the kitchen and grabbing a butcher knife? And I, so it was like- And this, taking a few of these bastards with you. Yeah, like he was committed to the very end that this was, he knew irredeemable evil when he saw it and he drew a line, which to me is what courage is about. Again, it, he's not perfect. There was a bunch of other things he did wrong. There were many moments that the British Empire, when he was in charge of it, did evil things. But when the worst evil of the 20th century appeared, when destiny tapped him on the shoulder, he was ready. And I think that's what courage is about. Now, it may be that you and I don't get enormous moments like that, but we will get the smaller moments. And when I say that like courage is calling, that's what I'm talking about. It's that it's always there. The opportunity to be courageous is always there. The Stoics say like we don't, the Stoics believed not so much in predestination, but they believe that the vast majority of our circumstances were out of our control. So Epictetus is born a slave, not his control. Marcus Aurelius is chosen to be emperor, not as not in his control. This is a high place and a low place. But both of those situations demand courage in their own way. Mm. And I think uh, if we accept that, okay, the vast majority of our life is predetermined by circumstances and evolution and um, the moment we're born and all of that, great. But what do you do with the little moments that life offers you? Do you pick the brave choice or the cowardly choice? Do you think about, do you say, what about me? Or do you think about, uh, I think a good question is, what would the world look like if everyone did what I'm about to do, right? Like if everyone turned away and said, that's going to cost me too much, right? We wouldn't, we would not be in a good place. And mm -hmm. so I think that's when you decide how you're going to look at history, it's, are you going to be inspired by the people who stepped up or are you going to use the failures of history as an excuse uh, to not have to try? You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, 
pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. I want to go back to this idea, which I am utterly gripped by, of your ability to look at a historical figure, to learn from the bad, and also be inspired by the good. And how do you want people to think about that as so many people either ignore the bad and only look at the good, or they only look at the bad and they ignore the good? Well, I think one of the things I think about is like, they're all dead. So who gives a shit? <laughs> right. So like this it idea- matters in the sense that people, you know, um, 
look backward and say this is all bad to your point and they end up either nihilistic or that this is all bad and because it's the po- the fruit of the poisonous tree it all has to be torn down so it can matter no what i mean is the people who who are afraid to look at the warts of the people and trends and places and countries they admire like uh a great quote i heard um was like um you can be responsible without having to be accountable right so like the fact that our ancestors did x y and z we're responsible for that because we all live in the society and world they created and there's like you know positive benefits and negative benefits of that that doesn't mean like i have to be held accountable for the holocaust right but it does mean that i am responsible for understanding what the holocaust is and why it happened and what the failures of good people and bad people were that contributed to it. And I'm responsible for integrating that information into my life and decisions going forward. So I'm all, like, and, and we talked, you, you, you sort of questioned that earlier, like why does, how is the pursuit of wisdom require courage? Well, maybe it just forces you to go, oh man, my parents or my grandparents or my great grandparents or the country that I'm proud to be from has a real awful track record, right? And that's uncomfortable. And we see how uh, quickly people come face to face with that and then uh, respond not by facing it, but by turning away from it, by banning that idea, by giving it some you know scary label like critical race theory or whatever, and then deciding it's a boogeyman, right? James Baldwin said that not everything that's faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed if it's not faced, Mm. right? And so courage, when we're looking at history or people or even your own life, right? It's it's very rare that you're going to study any of these things and be like, that person was perfect, least of all your own, right? I think about this looking back at my own life like i think about uh, my wife and i talk about this where so my wife and i've been together since we were 19 years old well so, so norm- i knew that but it's shocking every it, time i hear it's it. crazy <laughs> but so like you know normally like i would look back like let's say i dated a bunch of different people she dated a bunch of different people and then we got together in our 30s or mid-30s or whatever we would look back at the stupid things that we did in our 20s and it would be a problem of another relationship, mm. right? It would be like, I remember when I did X, Y, or Z, and that was embarrassing, or that was cruel, or that was stupid, uh, or that was selfish, or that was cowardly, or whatever it is. Um, that, that baggage would exist in another relationship. But if you're with someone for a long time, that baggage is there between you two just as the baggage is there between you and your siblings and you and the neighborhood that you live in and you and the country you live in or the political party that you support or whatever it is. And so it takes courage to to look and go like, man, I was not courageous, right? Or to, to go like, oh, I, I fucked up. I did this. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but unless you're willing to do that, there is precisely zero chance that you will learn from it and change and be made better for it. So it the study of history is not for the faint of heart. And you have to be able to do that without getting lost in that, right? So yes. if all you did was dwell on the dumb shit that you did at the beginning of your relationship, you'd never be able to move forward. Right. So Just my wife is if they're dwelling on it, it's impossible for you one, to exist in the moment. Now, 
Well said. So my wife and I have a show called Relationship Theory, and we talk about that. Like, can you actually move on? Like, right. it's one thing to to say that you forgive them, but can you let it go? Like, can you actually, we call it not letting dust settle. So it's like, you have this moment, you say that you forgive it, but like, if you really cleaned the surface, because if not, that dust just builds and builds and builds and you get this resentment where you're looking in from the outside of somebody's relationship, you're like, what is that bringing you? Yeah. Like, it looks gnarly. Like, that does not look like fun. I don't know why you're doing that. And the ability to actually let go of that stuff is really hard. Well, then just think about the courage. Like, let's say someone has done something in a relationship that's hurt you. Um, the, it takes courage to forgive, right? Because by forgiving and staying or, you know, continuing to have a relationship with the person, you are by definition saying, I am willing to get hurt again. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, courage is not just uh, can you jump out of an airplane or can you, you know, immigrate from one country to another with, you know, five dollars in your pocket. But it's also can you, you know, be willing to put aside resentments or suspicions or fears and tell someone what you feel or, you know, stay in a relationship that has uh, baggage or history um, that's you want to get into one of the really complicated ideas yeah. of your book. Okay. All right. So in it, you talk about, Hey, there's a difference between just sort of rushing headlong and doing something recklessly versus being brave. Walk us through because you're for people that haven't yet read it. One of the interesting things is you really address it from like every conceivable angle. Like here is courage in a balanced way. Here is courage when it becomes reckless. Here is like hiding from courage. And that one I thought was really interesting. Well, it's funny because I'm now in the middle of writing the temperance book. And I don't know I've, when I'm writing, I'm always tweaking like up till the end. And so there may be stuff that I've moved. Uh, before it went to, to, to final print that I don't remember exactly. But I'm thinking about this a lot now because actually for the virtue of moderation, Aristotle uses courage as the example. That's he, he says there's a golden mean. So he says that think of a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum, you have cowardice. You might think that on the other end of the spectrum is courage. But actually, no. Courage is in the middle between cowardice and recklessness. And so when we talk about boldness, it's crazy to think these guys lived thousands of years ago. I mean, this, yes. th that's some insightful shit. But, and not only is he talking about that in theory, he's also the philosophy instructor of Alexander the Great, <laughs> who is like having to think about that in a very real way, right? So when we think of philosophy, sometimes we think of these like caricatures of our university professors or something, like people who had no experience in mm -hmm. real life. I mean, he's talking about courage like as he's tutoring one of the bravest, most brilliant, strategically bold military commanders to ever walk the earth. Um, but I think that's a really important way of thinking about it because courage is not just doing whatever you want, taking any risk. In fact, there's a, a great Spartan story about uh, this one Spartan in like the heat of battle. He rips off his armor and he defeats all these guys like one-on-one. -on -one. It's like the bravest thing that anyone had ever seen. But the, the Spartan elders, when he gets back from battle, instead of like throwing him a parade, they fine him. They fine him for uh, endangering uh, an important Spartan asset 
himself. Right. <laughs> and so I love that. Right. So uh, and actually, I, as I was researching the book, I talked to a friend of mine who is uh, an instructor at the Naval Academy. And he was saying he's like, you know, jumping on a grenade is not brave. Unless you're doing it to protect someone else. Right. So it's like if you just jump on the grenade because you're like a grenade, like and you're just instinctually brave, you're actually being reckless, which is a vice. Right. You've you've just killed yourself for zero return on that investment. Now, if you jump on the grenade and it protects a room full of innocent people, that's an incredibly that's not just courageous. That's heroic, it's selfless. But if you just do it, it's selfish. Uh, if, if the only person it affects is you. So um, when we think about uh, boldness, you know, there's this expression, fortune favors the bold. When we think about boldness, it's within, again, those limitations of the other virtues. Uh, if the fight doesn't need to happen, it's not courageous to start it. Um, if uh, you don't need to go all in on this hand, uh, going all in on it, is not courageous, it's stupid and reckless. Um, and so deciding what battles need to be fought, what risks need to be taken, uh, how risk can be taken off the table if it's not necessary, this is an important part of, of courage. It's not just, I don't feel fear. If you don't feel fear, you are not thinking. Yeah, it was interesting reading the book. I was like, it's so inspiring and it makes you want to be a better person, which is like the <laughs> highest praise I can give a book. Uh, and one of the notes that I took was sometimes though being lacking courage or being reckless, it's not clear which is which. Like it's not clear like, wait, if I do this, am I being uh, wise because to push forward would be reckless or am I not doing this because I'm afraid and not doing this as cowardice? And I was like, sometimes a lack of courage is just straight confusion. Well, there's a story about Theodore Roosevelt. It's not in the book, but I was reading it when I was researching the book. Basically, there's some sort of inter-party split over like corruption or something early on in his career. And a bunch of his friends all leave the Republican Party in disgust, anger over them. And this is so far distant that there's no connection to what Republicans or Democrats right. are today. So let's put politics aside. But basically, they all leave. And Theodore Roosevelt stays. Now, is this cowardice? Or is it courageous? Because he wouldn't have been able to become the Republican president like 10 or 15 years later had he left in a huff, right? And another good example of this is like, what if... Uh, your job uh, is asking you to do something unethical or morally uh, frustrating or you're just not cool with it. Um, but by storming out in disgust or whatever, you are then leaving your family destitute. Mm -hmm. I had um, Alexander Vindman on my podcast a few uh, weeks ago. He's the, um, the whistleblower who got Trump impeached. Again, put politics aside, but he... Uh, sees something, he says something. And I talked to him about it and I said, like, you know, were you worried about, like, how do I pay for my daughter's college education? And he said, these are kind of the things that you think about, right? We often self-deter. We go, well, uh, I don't want to do it because it would be irresponsible for the following reason. So it, it, there, I don't want to make it seem like it's clear cut because it's not. It's fucking really hard. And it's not like a hell yes, hell no thing. Like you just know. And it, it, it's, it's often 
very morally ambiguous. It's very morally ambiguous and challenging. And if you're not torn about it, it's probably uh, probably not super high stakes situation. Mm. Um, But there's a moment I do talk about in the book where Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and this is a good test that I like. Theodore Roosevelt is considering asking Booker T. Washington to have dinner with him at the White House, the first African-American to be invited to dine at the White House as a guest of the president. Now, it's not fair to say he's the first African-American to eat at the White House. Plenty of them had to eat at the White House. They were just never allowed to be guests of honor. So this is a a major political statement uh, in the early 1900s. And Theodore Roosevelt is considering doing it. And then he thinks about why no one has done it before him, which is the southern states won't like it. His southern relatives won't like it. The newspapers will make it a thing. It could cost him a close election. And then he says uh, in a letter to a friend, he was like, precisely because I hesitated, I felt disgust with myself and I knew that I had to do it. So often I find that the thing you're hesitating on doing, the considerations are usually very helpful in in reminding you of what actually matters. But if you're not thinking about this, if you're just plunging ahead, you know, you're probably also going to charge off a cliff from mm. some point. Yeah, man, this stuff gets so interesting and to your point about Alexander the Great, like I mean and and even just backing it off just that it will play out in your life, whether it's something big or small, philosophy really is about a life well lived. And In the book, I can't remember if it's you that said it or you're quoting somebody else. We all know there's something worse than death. And when you create that haddock for yourself and you have the fence of, you know, what my virtues are and how I'm going to behave, you know, like what things you would actually be prepared to die for, where your sort of line of recklessness is. And you fucking better define that before you find yourself in that situation And in the book, you give an example where I'm like, "Uh, I don't know if that was reckless or if Mm -hmm. I'm like really inspired. And the example is the guy in the Senate in ancient Rome. And he is he's expressly told, if you speak against me, it's not going to end well for you. Yeah, he does it anyway. And I'll I'll leave you to fill in the the gaps in the story. So I think are you saying that you think I was saying he was reckless I'm saying I don't know if I'm I'm blown away that he had the balls to say what he thought was true because for him to lie because he tells the guy just don't ask if you don't ask I won't say anything but if you ask I'm going to tell the truth right and I was like I'm impressed (laughs) and at the same time like if you know people get killed for this shit I don't know what I would have done in that situation yeah so this is uh the senator is named Helvidius, and I actually talk about it in my book, Lives of the Stoics, too. But he's one of the, the Stoic uh, senators in, in uh, the sort of middle Roman period. And, and Rome has had this series of really bad, corrupt, awful emperors. And they're in the middle of another one. And, you know, the job of the Senate was sort of to advise and consult, as it is now. Um, and a lot of people take that to mean don't tell the boss what he doesn't want to hear, right? Don't, uh, you know, the nail that stands up gets hammered down. Don't say anything controversial. Just wait this out, uh, and then hopefully things will get better. And he basically says, I'm not going to do that. Like, uh, my job is to do, uh, is to say what I think is true. And if 
if uh, you know, not going to go around screaming uh, and and sort of being reckless. But like, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the answer uh, that uh, that I think is true. And he's willing to die over that principle, um, which is, I think, uh, incredible. Um, and and it, again, is that to say that you should die over every you know little thing? No, but I think it is to say what are you willing to risk for the principles that you have. I remember a friend of mine is, is a senator, and I remember uh, he, uh, I won't, because it'll get controversial, get into it, but he'd taken some you know political stand. And I emailed him and I said, congratulations, like it's really impressive. And then I, sa- I said, you know, what is the point of having six years of guaranteed job security if you're not gonna use it to say what you think is true, if you're not gonna vote according to what you think is right? But it is really interesting. Like you see academics with tenure, lifelong employment guarantees. You see senators or uh, congressmen. You and I don't have two. We we always are sympathetic to congressmen because and, and women because you know they're they're always up for reelection. I mean, you and I don't have two years of guaranteed job security. Very few people do. So I'm actually not sympathetic to that at all. Like you have two years or six years of guaranteed job security, and you're not going to do what you think is right because you might lose your job over it. I mean, your job is to do what you think is right. What did you get into politics for mm. uh, if not to do that? This isn't like, uh, this isn't, this is a, a, a profession of service, right? And so I, I do think these these situations can be seen from different angles, but I think generally um, the idea of like, I'm gonna do my job come what may uh, Solzhenitsyn has a line. He says, "Let evil enter the world, but not through me." Fuck, and, uh, dude, he blows me away. That fucking guy. Like, I, obviously, you've read um, mm-hmm. the Gulag Archipelago. Oh, wow! Like, would you be willing to go to the Gulag for what you believe? You Here, know, that's 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 a real. Would you? Would Ryan Holiday go to the depends Gulag? Depends on what it is, right? That that's the. That's the question. But I remember you and I, we talked like a year ago and we were talking about something that was like politically charged, controversial. And you said something that stuck with me that I've thought about since. You said, you know, um, I, I thought what I thought and then I found myself not saying it because I knew people would be upset by it. Mm. And then I realized that uh, to not say what I think is true for business reasons is uh, not a good way to live. Made me feel like a coward. Yeah, and and I think that's um, I think that's a really good test because you know you watch people accumulate power or influence or a platform, and then what do they use it for? They use it for the perpetuation and expansion of those same things. I I'll get emails from people. I'll say something that's political or whatever, and they'll why did you do this? You had to know you would you know piss people off and go what do you think I built this platform for? Like I didn't write these books and build this email list and this YouTube following and this Instagram following and whatever to then censor myself to not lose those people. I mean, the whole point of having it is to use it to say what I think is true. That is the job, right? The job of a writer or an artist or a thought leader, whatever you want to call it, is to explore and articulate what they think is true and believe to be important. So if you don't do that, 
because you see the numbers and the numbers tell you that it drives unsubscribes or unfollows yeah. or angry comments. You're not just being a coward, but you're betraying the whole reason for doing it. Like there's a there's a exchange with Lyndon Johnson as he's uh, pushing through civil rights, which a whole bunch of other people were much more fervently in favor of than he. I mean, he's a Southern senator. He'd done basically nothing on civil rights most of his career. Um, but what Johnson knew was how to get stuff done, right? Johnson knew how to get stuff done. So after the assassination of Kennedy, he decides like in uh, memory of Kennedy, he's going to ram this thing through. And he thinks he can do it. And I think he does come to earnestly believe in the ideas, even though he'd been very slow to adopt them and perfectly fine to, you know, experience the benefits of segregated society for most of his life. But some aide comes to him and says, you know, this is going to be politically disastrous. You're going to, are you sure you want to do this? Blah, blah, blah. And he says, what the, he says, ah, oh, what the hell is the presidency for? Right? Like if the perp, you, you work your whole life as he did successive offices, 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 you slave away in obscurity. You finally get to wield the levers of power. And it's really important that people realize this. When you get that, when the, the, the game is in your hands, like when you're in control, your impulse is not now, I'm going to really do things my way. Because if they were, you probably wouldn't have gotten to that point. You would have done this earlier, right? So the impulse is not now that I have power, I'm going to use it to do the things that I believe in. That, that would be the courageous thing. The, the, this is where the cowardice comes in and you go, ah but you'll lose the midterms, right? You'll not get reelected. Your donors will be upset. The newspapers will criticize you. And I think that's what Theodore Roosevelt was saying too about inviting Booker T. Washington. He's like, what the what fucking good is it to be the president of the United States of America if I can't invite who I want to invite to dinner, right? Not only is that morally repugnant, it's, it's pointless, right? But this is where we get people. You, you watch... You know, powerful people in all different facets of life not say or do what they think is right. And I've been guilty of it in my own life. I'm sure you have too. Because you have your considerations. Yes. And there's a couple things in there. So one, the Theodore Roosevelt thing I find really interesting because of that. Like you listen to that gut instinct, right? It's the same, obviously, on a much smaller scale. But it's the same feeling that I had of no one in the outside world knew that I was starting to feel like a coward. Right. But I knew, and I didn't want to feel that way. And that very thing, cause I'm always trying to get people to understand the whole purpose of life is to feel good about yourself when you're by yourself. Yes. And so whether the outside world thinks you're amazing, if you're at home contemplating suicide, you have fuck all like yeah. you have absolutely nothing. And if the whole world thinks you're an asshole, but you really believe to the core of your being that you stood up for the right thing, you're still going to feel good. It doesn't mean that you're not going to face hardships. It doesn't mean you're not going to sure. wonder how am I going to pay for my kid's college. But man, you have something that's really, really powerful. And learning to listen to that, to translate the feeling into an idea that you can articulate, I think is very important and something a lot of people never take the time to do. And so they don't understand their own emotions. I think that's really powerful. And then, you know, just getting to the point where, you recognize the complexity of things. So for instance, with um, you and I might be in slightly different positions. Maybe it'll be interesting to say okay. this out loud and see how you think about it. So 
I'm not a writer. And the only reason that I stepped in front of the camera was one, I wanted to impact people's lives positively, obviously. Impact theory. Uh, and then two, I want to build the next Disney. So I want to build a brand that is bigger than me. When we started, sure. we were like, what do we call this thing? Everybody was like, Bill you Studios all day long. The show should be called the Tom Bill you Show. Right. And I was like, fuck that. No one is going to tattoo Tom Bill you on themselves other than my wife who strangely wants to and I absolutely refuse. Uh, but I knew that they could feel a sense of ownership over impact theory. So all of that to say, I can damage my own brand sure. by saying things to not feel like a coward. So now I'm in this like sort of doubly complex thing of I'm only in front of the camera to positively impact people's lives. The more that I can be almost transparent in that interaction and just give them something that they can own that will, you know, give them the ideas. They need the ideas. They don't need me. And so I'm like, God, like, am I just going to trip myself up by going up? But because I know that all of this is for naught, if I don't feel good about who I am, if I don't feel that I've contributed in a meaningful way, if I don't feel that I've done something honorable is probably the word I would use with my life. And so that feeling, that's why, you know, one of the big questions I had reading your book is how much of this is just inescapable that we're all like, if you fail to be courageous, you will suffer no matter what the world thinks. They could all be like, maybe they, you get celebrated for being the biggest hero in the world, but inside, you know, it wasn't you like the Don Draper effect. If you watch Mad Men where he like took a hero's identity. Yeah. And so people are constantly like, you know, thank you for your service. And he knows that he was a total coward. And ah, just like, that's so gnarly. And I just cannot. When this see. is, this is where that stoic idea of sometimes it's like, Hey, are you speaking up about current events? Or it's like, Hey, suddenly, you know, you've witnessed some, calamity and you're the only person who can speak up about it right so there's a certain amount of sort of randomness to it they call this uh, moral luck right like were you of age born in this country when uh, they were deciding who was going to land at normandy right. you and i were not so that wasn't an opportunity for us to be courageous and uh you know or were you there when the police were brutalizing someone and you had the courage to take out your camera and film it despite their threatening, you know, to arrest you if you continue or what. So there's a certain amount of luck. Um, and if you want to call it luck in the kind of destiny that that is chosen for us. But then there's also the sort of little moments of like, are you living up to what you believe in? Are you uh, using the assets that you have to be the person that you know you want to be? And I think it is important, right? Like, what good is success if you have to censor yourself, right? <clears throat> so you you have the next Disney, but you knew you had to compromise on all the things that were important to you mm -hmm. to get there. What good Pyrrhic is that? victory. Yeah. Um, the Bible talks about the, the man who uh, gaineth the whole world but loses his soul, right? And I think that's sadly very common. Mm. Um, and I think this is particularly common in politics, in business, uh, in the creative fields where to make your way up through the system, you have to show that you're not a threat, right? To show you're not a threat. Yeah. So, um, okay. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was a captain, uh, I think I'm forgetting his first name, but it's captain Crozier. He's like 
the head of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and uh, it pulls into New York Harbor. There's a COVID outbreak on the ship. And she doesn't feel like people are taking it seriously, that the people inside the Navy are taking it seriously. And so he has uh, a moral and he has a moral quandary. Do I continue to do I just follow my orders and let the people I'm entrusted with leading suffer as a result? Or do I take more desperate measures that will involve repercussions for me professionally and speak up about it? Uh, and he speaks up about it. I think he like he sees a reporter. I forget the specifics, but he ends up basically losing uh, his job as the job he wanted his whole life to be the captain of an aircraft carrier. Uh, and he loses his job over what he believed was the right thing. But I think it's important to zoom back and go, you don't like people are like, oh, this was reckless, let's say or something. Um, you don't become the captain of an aircraft carrier if you're not a pretty good rule follower. Right. Like, uh, Think of all the years he had to spend in the Navy following uh, the rules, uh, putting in his time, not being disruptive, not being like for the entrepreneurs have a different career trajectory than most almost any other profession. Right. Where like you're an outsider who starts their own thing. So from the beginning, there was courage. But what about like Tim Cook? Right. People are like Tim Cook's not as courageous and groundbreaking as Steve Jobs. Well, if he was, do you think he would have lasted very long at <laughs> I Apple? See what you're saying, no. Like they, 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 that doesn't work. So there's different, different career paths for different people. But the question is, when you find yourself in that situation, do you do the courageous thing or the cowardly thing when it really matters, right? Um, and I think the sad truth is, a, lo a lot of times we don't. In the book, you catalog. A time when you didn't feel you had acted very courageously speaking of business mm -hmm. um it's fascinating that in a book about courage that people actually advised you not to include that which by the way the weirdest fucking thing and of course when you're on the other side of it you can't convince yourself that it's true but it made me think you far more courageous that you included it in the book and it made me like you that much more and it was elements of the story i'd never heard before um but it'd be great to hear both what happened and why you included it in the book. Well, it's a tricky thing writing a book about courage when you're not Jocko Willink or something, <laughs> right? Like, like I'm not writing this from the perspective of a soldier or a courageous whistleblower or something like that. Um, that's not what I do, right? That like I'm a writer. My job is to study trends, to incorporate my own experience, but to study history and psychology and philosophy to communicate sort of timeless ideas. Um, but I felt like it would be very disingenuous to write a book about uh, courage and the importance of courage and somehow present this, like by association, this uh, idea that like I was the perfect embodiment of these ideas. In fact, I think the reason I write my books Whatever I'm writing about, whether my last book was about stillness, whether I was writing about ego, whether I was writing about obstacles, I'm always trying to write about the thing I am struggling with. And if I am not struggling with it, if it's very clear and obvious and second nature to me, it's not interesting enough to write a book about. You know, like I think you write about what you want to spend years of your life studying and exploring and learning about. So when I was sort of trying to think about how I wanted to wrap up the book, I mean, I could I could have talked about 
dropping out of college. I could have talked about taking a, you know, when I left my corporate life to be a writer. I could have talked about things that required no small amounts of courage, but I felt like it would be, first off, it would pale in comparison to the examples in the book, right? Um, you know, whether it's Florence Nightingale or Churchill or, or De Gaulle or the 300 Spartans, it would just seem silly. Um, so part of it was just a creative decision, to be perfectly honest. Like, what what is the final thought that you want to leave the readers with? Do you want to make it really uh, lofty and aspirational, or do you want to make it accessible and real? So part of it was that. But then the other part was just, it was something that has been weighing on me for a long time. And um, as I studied these people, it kept coming back to me, well, what about when you fell short. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. And so I was telling a story about when I was at American Apparel, where I was a director of marketing for many years, and I was asked to do something that was unethical. Not just unethical, but probably illegal and unquestionably stupid. Um, and, and I didn't do, I said, I'm not going to do it. And I thought there was a chance I would lose my job over it, but I also was taking like half the risk, right? Like I said, I wouldn't do it, but I knew that someone else was going to do it. And I don't remember all the details, but I knew that, and I knew that it was happening, right? I just decided like, 
I just, I, I said, you know, we were talking about that Solzhenitsyn quote, let evil enter the world, but not through me. In a sense, that's not enough, right? You can't just plug your ears and close your eyes and turn away mm-hmm. from something. If you know that it's happening, you don't do anything to stop it. Aren't you letting it happen through you, right? You're at least, uh, Marx really says in meditations that you can commit injustice by doing nothing also. And I did nothing. And I watched this thing happen. And in retrospect, I think what ages the least well about it to me is like, why would, I think there was a part of me that said, you know, you could lose your job over this. Do you want to like rock the boat? Do you want to like, is you're not going to go toe to toe with the CEO and owner uh, of the company um, with a handpicked board of directors. Like it's, you're not going to be able to do anything about this. So you'll probably lose your job over it if you make too big of a fuss of it. But then in retrospect, it's like, what kind of job is worth keeping if stopping someone from doing this thing makes you lose it? And the other irony for me is that, like, I was already planning on leaving to be a writer. I was just I was thinking about my personal safety. I was thinking, well, here's my plan and this disrupts my plans. And if I lose my job, it would be this or that. And like I was thinking about myself and not the other people involved in the thing. And that doesn't that doesn't hold up well. And what do you think about the owning that and putting it in a book? And is there some sort of catharsis around just owning it? I think so. I mean, there was some, there's definitely some catharsis, catharsis, like deciding to like go back and like ask people who were there when it happened. What did they remember of it? What did they remember about it? And like, it was actually reassuring talking to some of the people. Cause I, I was worried, like, was this like an isolated instance or like I went it, this is a company that had a lot of me too issues basically, but I went and I asked like the female employees that worked for me, not, not like wanting them to reassure me, but I wanted to know like, like, was I like part of the problem here? Like, did I, uh, was this like a pattern of behavior or something that I was like a participant? And they were like, no, on the opposite, like they told me it was the opposite, that it was what I was telling myself when I didn't get involved or when I didn't actively stop it was that I would be in a worse position to help the people who I was responsible for. And it was reassuring to hear from them that like, no, they really felt like I was responsible for them and that I was protecting them. At the same time, that doesn't excuse, it explains it, but it doesn't excuse it, right? And so there was some catharsis. There was some, it was actually just sort of personally helpful to explore it so I could learn from it. Um, But I also, what I wanted to show too is that courage isn't this thing where like you're either courageous or you're not. Like um, it's more a thing you do like day to day. and so there's been courageous moments in my life. And then there's been moments like this, like ones you wish you could get back. And it's really about how do you learn from those as you go forward? And can you get to a place where more often than not, you make the courageous call? That was a really interesting way that you end the book. Um, do you remember the sort of paraphrased words that you use? I can get you close, but I wouldn't. Okay, I can I can look at them, but oh yeah, that's right. We have the book. Why don't you pull okay, it out? What what, what the, is it? literally your sign off? Which I thought was really interesting. Where you're like you, you, something to oh. the effect of "Be courageous, no wait." Yeah, I said, uh, "Courage calls to each of us. Will we answer? Or maybe that's too much. 
Can we get better at answering? Can we step up more times than we step back? Let's start there. I like that I a lot. Well like said. That. That's not so bad. Well said. Uh, how do we get more courageous so that we answer that call more often? Well, I think the more you can make it a habit, right? In in the same way that exercise, like this morning, uh, obviously I like don't want to work out, but I decided to, and so I did, right? Um, and then I remember standing in the shower, and it was nice and warm. And then when you crank that handle, you know, to the cold part, even if it's just for a few seconds, I think one of the things you're doing is like reminding yourself who's in charge, and who is in charge. I'd like to think the courageous side of me is in charge, like the side that does the hard thing, the side the 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 side that does the uncomfortable thing, this the side the that the conscious side can override the emotional side or vice versa, depending on what it is, right? But it Seneca talks about the reason to treat the body rigorously is so that it's not disobedient to the mind, which I love. I think about that wow. all the time. You know, like who that's who's in charge, right? Like you or your desire to be comfortable, to be well liked, uh, to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, like who's in charge. And I think if you think about courage as like very rarely the easy way and almost always the harder way, um, you can build that as a muscle. Like I do the harder thing. I don't read the comments right like i say what i think is true and i don't flinch you know is this going to be bad for me or not like uh that doesn't mean you go around half cocked but like i i don't flinch from stuff i do that hard thing to me that's the habit that we're trying to build and i think one of the ways we do that bring this full circle is by not just studying history, but by like integrating those people into your lives. Like what would they do here? Like what tradition are you an heir to? Um, there's a great poem by Longfellow where he talks about um, that uh, the he says the lives of all great men remind us we can make our lives sublime. And then he says, um, and then in doing that, we can leave behind us footprints in the sands of time that for another person says sailing over life's solemn main can take heart from. Mm. Right. So I think if you think about it as this like sort of series of like this unending procession of torches, like that where one torch is lighting another is lighting another is lighting another and that you, you, you are a descendant, uh, literally or figuratively, of people who have endured like unimaginable difficulties and persevered through it. Um, and so can you. And in so doing, you are reassuring the people that come from you, again, literally or figuratively, that uh, they also have what it takes. Mm. Talk to me about the idea of burning the white flag. Well, I think when you look at a lot of courageous acts, whether it's, you know, sort of resistance in war or, you know, somebody who, you know, enacted some political change or whatever, there was this sort of tenacious refusal to surrender. Like um, Seneca talks, again, to quote Seneca, he says, like, if they can force you to do it, you don't know how to die. 
Whoa. Meaning that like, uh, you can lose, but quitting is a choice. I think, uh, have you read Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway? No. It's a beautiful, very short book. But, um, you know, he says, a man can be defeated but not destroyed. Or is it destroyed and not defeated? But the, the point is, those are not the same thing, mm. right? And that the decision to quit, the decision to give up, the decision to concede, that's ultimately a power that you always have. Um, again, you can, you're going to end up on the losing side. That happens. Um, but you decide if that's it. I think that might even be the, that idea was when you brought up Churchill talking to his daughter-in-law. Because if I remember right, the quote about go, there's nothing stopping you from going into the kitchen and getting a butcher's knife and taking a few of these bastards with you. I'm not saying that they can't eventually beat you, just that you don't ever have to give up or something like that. I think that's right. I think that's right. Although there is another great, Churchill quote where he says, never, ever, 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 ever give in. He says, except in matters of taste and good sense, or in, in, in except in matters of honor or good sense. So are there sometimes where it makes sense to concede? Yes. That is my all-time favorite quote. I fucking love that so much. It's so good. I mean, he just walked into a school of boys and just, you're supposed to give like a 30-minute address, <laughs> and that's what he said. <laughs> it's amazing. Have you seen the movie Our Finest Hour? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. I love this so much. Look, he there's no doubt that he's a complex figure who did also dumb shit. Yeah. But to think and in fact, this is an idea that comes up in the book over and over and over again and is very inspiring to me, which is this idea of one person showing courage can become a a majority. And the courage is contagious, as they say. Yes. Give me more about that. Well, there's a quote. It's attributed to Andrew Jackson. We don't know if he actually said it, but he said um, uh, one man with courage makes a majority. And I don't know if you, there's like a viral video of like some guy at like a concert and uh, no, everyone's sitting in the grass and he just starts dancing. And then like suddenly more and more. Have you seen this one? And like suddenly like I the haven't whole, seen the whole crowd one. is dancing, but it's a it's a nice metaphor for what we're talking about. Mm. And de Gaulle was asked this uh, towards the end of his life. Um, you know, people think like, for instance, the French resistance, everyone was in the French resistance, like the Nazis overran France and five percent of the population resisted whoa five percent so it's not just like oh hey like a new political party came and uh like we didn't really like it but like no like the worst cause in human history takes over your country and only five percent of people were like i object right like people were like i don't like this but only five percent of people maybe less actively participate in the resistance now of course retroactively everyone says we were with you (laughs) that's not how it was but de gaulle was asked you know, uh, is it, isn't it true that you were always in a minority in everything you did? And he said, yes, but I always believed that someday that would cease to be so. And you think about this, the first video that you post, uh, first book that I write, the first time anyone does anything creatively, financially, uh, entrepreneurially, nobody thought it would work, right? Like you were the only one that believed in it or else they would have done it, right? Like, and sure, maybe five people. But the point is the vast majority of people thought it was, either thought it was a bad idea or couldn't even muster up enough care to tell you it was a bad idea. Like they were just ignorant of your entire existence, right? So you you are in a fundamental minority when you start anything and you have to have this belief. And again, we talk about the, the courageousness of earnestness. You have to have a belief that one day that will cease to be so. Um, 
you know, when I sold my first book about stoicism, I'd written two successful marketing books. <clears throat> and my publisher told me after that, um, you know, they were not interested in what became the obstacles of the way really at all. They offered me half what I got paid for my first book for what was my third book, the obstacles wow. of the way, less than half. Um, and I remember my editor said something like, uh, I asked her like this, like last year. And she said, well, you know, we were just hoping you would get this out of your system and <laughs> go back to doing what we thought you should be doing. Right. And, you know, I get it. Like in retrospect, like obscure books about, uh, uh, books about an ancient obscure school of philosophy are not like the most sexy, ex but that's what I wanted to do. And more importantly, I had seen what it had done for me and I believed that it would be bigger than they thought it would be. But there was a moment where that was not empirically, <laughs> you know, evident. And, you know, it took, it took, uh, it didn't hit the obstacles way, hit no bestseller list when it came out. Uh, and it did not hit any bestseller list, although it sold consistently, did not hit a single bestseller list for the first six years that it was Whoa. out in the world. Um, and it chugged along until eventually it hit number one. And when it hit number one, of course, everyone said, well, obviously, <laughs> you know, this is a popular school of ancient philosophy. Like, of course, you know. Right. Um, and I think anyone that's unearthed anything or popularized anything or invented anything new experiences that. Like, everyone tells you it's a bad idea until you definitively prove it was a good idea. And then the curse is that it looks like it was obvious all mm. along. You actually give an example of that in the book. Um, oh, God, which person? It was the Kennedys and uh, the Shriver. I think I forget Sergeant that guy's Shriver. first name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1960, Martin Luther King is arrested for integrating a restaurant in Georgia. And this is like not like, oh, he was just arrested and he was going to be treated well in jail. Like it was very real there was a very real threat that he would be lynched or murdered in police custody and even if he wasn't he was sentenced to four months on a chain gang um, which again was likely a pretext for him to be killed while escaping mm. or lynched or you know mysteriously disappear um and so coretta scott king if you want to talk about courage she's raising two children she's pregnant with her third she says i'm gonna call Kennedy and Nixon, the two guys running for president. I'm going to call the next president of the United States and see if they can't intervene to help my husband. And Nixon, going back to the Roosevelt thing we were talking about, Nixon says, I don't want to get involved. Uh, it's going to be bad for me politically. When I'm president, I'll be in a position to help you. Um, and the worst part about it is that he was actually friends with Martin Luther King. He knew him personally. They'd socialized. Uh, he'd worked with him when Nixon ran Eisenhower's civil rights uh, uh, projects. And, but in the moment of truth, he wasn't there. And Kennedy, um, was advised by people looking at the same political calculation to also not get involved, except his brother-in-law, uh, says, no, man, you gotta do this. Like, it's not just the right thing. It's like the only thing, like you can't let this, the civil rights leader of our time, you know, be murdered in a Georgia prison, Again, what good is becoming president if you can't do this? And so uh, Kennedy and his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, get involved. Uh, they call the judge. They call the governor. They pull some strings. And they get King released. 
Um, basically, they put enough attention on it that it was no longer possible for something bad to happen in the shadows. In any case, King gets out. He's uh, devastated that his friend betrayed him and, you know, impressed at the balls on Kennedy uh, that, that, hey, this isn't just some like rich kid from Boston uh, with, you know, powerful parents. Uh, this is like a guy with real courage and real commitment to, to you know, the ideals of what America is supposed to stand for. And so Kennedy, uh, so Ken King comes out and says, like, this is what John F. Kennedy does for me. And uh, John F. Kennedy wins the presidency by like 30,000 votes, um, almost entirely due to the switch of black turnout. Most in, in 1960, actually, the Republican Party was the party of uh, African-Americans, not the Democratic Party. And so it flips. Uh, and he wins the presidency. So when we talk about courage, it's like, first off, it's not always going to be obvious. People are going to be telling you it's precisely the wrong thing to do. Mm. Um, but then also just like a few seconds of courage can change not just the course of your life, but talk about the great man of history theory. It can change the course of an entire society. Do I remember I also that <clears throat> people told Shriver, dude, don't, this is not advice you want to give yeah. because... If he feels pressured by you, he's going to never want to hear from you again and you'll be iced out of the campaign. And if he ends up taking your advice, everyone's going to forget that you just took this big risk. Well, this is how all bureaucracies function. Basically, all organizations where, you know, you don't people don't have real skin in the game. It's all downside <laughs> and no upside to, to, to speak up. Right. If you if you push for the risk and it doesn't work, you're the idiot mm -hmm. who screwed it all up and you get fired and. And if it works out, of course you were right. It was obvious. And here's your pat on the back. You did your job, you know? Yep. And so he, he, he had to call in. He called in his own, his, he, he basically said, look, I'm family. I'm calling in my one chip, right? Like you have to do, he put it all on the line. And uh, again, yeah, who remembers it? Nobody. <laughs> Uh, you got no credit for it. Kennedy gets the credit. Um, Kennedy became president, right? He got all of it. Um, and that is, I think, another important sort of, you know, I talk about in the book, I talk about courage is this like sort of rare gem you hold up. And different angles produce different sort of reflections. But like we often think of the courageous president, the courageous CEO, the courageous whistleblower. Whatever, but we also often forget the sort of ordinary courage of the people who spoke up inside of an organization, mm. <clears throat> people who put forth this little policy or made this little tweak or pocketed this piece of paper to prevent some bad thing from happening. Like, courage is not always sexy and obvious, and it's not, you know, riding a galloping horse, you know, or it's not flashed uh, across the headlines. It's, it can often be very unsung as well. Yeah, it's there's a an interesting quote from Steve Jobs in the book where he says one way that we remember who we are is when we remind ourselves of who our heroes are, which I thought was really interesting. I'm curious, who are your heroes? Yeah, I think what what Jobs is talking about is the same thing I'm talking about in how I approach things and what I try to do in my books, which is like who whose standard are you trying to live up to like whose shadow are you walking in who are you who are you trying not to let down 
And if you think about those, if you think about who those are for Apple, you know, they have the famous sort of Misfits commercial, um, the weird ones or whatever it is. Um, you know, who are those people for you? And can you make them real to you? And again, thinking about like who your heroes are is really clarifying. I think I have a, obviously I have a bunch of ancient heroes, of course, uh, the Stoics being the ones I talk about the most. And, you know, I return to the same characters in the books quite often. That's something I have to sometimes be careful with. I'm fascinated by Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, Florence Nightingale was someone I'd been wanting to write about for a long time and hadn't been able to. Um, but as far as living, I don't, I always feel weird doing the living one because I'm all for dead. Like who are some of your favorite Stoics and why? Well, so what's fascinating to me about Stoicism is the spectrum on which the Stoics exist. So you have Epictetus, who's born a slave. You have Marcus Aurelius, who's born into privilege and then is chosen to be emperor. And so you have extreme adversity and extreme advantage. And yet they both sort of play the hand that, fate's, that fate deals them with such sort of grace, virtue, and self-control, and wisdom, that I just, I love that. Because the reality is we're somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, almost all of us, right? Um, we're unlikely to lead the free world, we're unlikely to be thrown into chains, but we're either dealing with too much or not enough of something, and how do you sort of stand up to that to me is what it's all all about so i i what i love about stoicism and why i found it just so fulfilling to write about is like they were real people like not academics not uh even 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 seneca the sort of the probably the greatest writer of the stoics is like the second most powerful man in rome and he's a playwright, like on the side, like he's, he's, he's in the arena, you know, like doing, doing the work. Mm -hmm. And I, I think ideas that don't have that component, it doesn't really matter to me how brilliant they are. Uh, they haven't been tested. And I think what I take from the Stokes is like, they've been tested in every imaginable way in context. Now, somebody that has gotten into your universe and I, he wrote something on the cover of your book and I know wrote you an email that you have hung on your wall that you take as a reminder. I would assume daily Yeah, is general Mattis. That would definitely be a living hero for me for sure. I wondered about that. And how did you guys connect? Um, through Steven Pressfield. Interesting. What is it about Mattis who I find fascinating that you, I uh, think is worthy of that kind of praise. Well, I mean, anyone that works in public service for decades, you know, I think uh, is worthy of our sort of respect and gratitude, uh, particularly something like the Marines, you know, serving actively in combat and all different positions of leadership. But I think, you know, anyone that lives by a code kind of seems like apart from the rest of us because they're, they're, there's something really difficult. It's like we know how difficult that is and we know how challenging it is and we know that it's, it's, we know they could get away with less. 
right? So I, I always admire someone, even when I disagree with them, I really admire people who live by a code. Like politically, so many things I might disagree with, with say a John McCain. But clearly this is a man who lives by a code, has real skin in the game pertaining to that code, and under pressure at various times in his life, in some cases unimaginable pressure, like being a prisoner of war, um, he stuck to the code when, again, he didn't have to. And so I admire people, and I try to follow in my own small way in the footsteps of people who have stuck with that code even when it's cost them. So Mattis famously resigns on principle um, when, uh, when the U.S. pulls out of Syria. Um, his also, though, uh, believes that, you know, basically you don't criticize sitting presidents. So even though he disagreed vehemently with the president who he resigned, said nothing critical. Uh, and again, I, I just I, I just admire someone who lives by a code. But he and I were emailing and um, we're talking about something that had just happened in the world. I forget what it was specifically, but some major event. And I was sort of down on it. And I was pointing out, um, you know, I was I was sort of asking, like, is this is this as bad as I think it is? And he was like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like it's worse. Right. Um but he, but he said something reassuring. He said, you know, sometimes it's darkest before the dawn and then uh, gave me some sort of reassurance. And I said, like, well, if you're saying that and you've seen some like you've seen some of the worst things that human beings do to each other, which is what war is. And you still have hope. I was like, what excuse do I have? And he just said, hold the line, which is sort of like the mantra that he has sort of introduced. Uh, he's given a couple famous speeches about it. Um, and it's sort of like that's his thing. It's his hold the line. And it's a great it's a great little mantra because I think it. What is the line? Right. I think the line is virtue. Like what is what is your oath tell you to do? What does your conscience tell you to do? What is your uh, professional obligation tell you to do? Um, what does virtue tell you to do? And I think that's what he was saying. It's like it doesn't matter what's happening in the outside world. Doesn't matter if this is, you know, I think what he was joking. He was like, it's always darkest before the dawn. Um, but, uh, sometimes it just stays dark or something like that, right? Like he wasn't saying like, it's all sunshine and roses. It's all going to be good. What he was saying is like, could be great, could be horrible, mm. but like, you know what your job is. If I remember right, cause I just recently heard you read this. He quoted McCain oddly yeah. enough and said, or as John McCain says, sometimes it is darkest right before it gets darker. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. it. Exactly. And yeah, that is, uh, very interesting, the idea of holding the line, even when you know that things are in a gnarly place and they could get gnarlier, but we burn the white flag, we don't give up, we have courage, we lean into that. Um, it's really uh, an inspiring concept. I loved the book, dude. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it, though, because of its usability. And and just to sidestep for a second, because of the the sort of poetic nature that allowed me to step outside of any cynicism that might that I actually don't have, but I can sort of feel at the edges of society. It gave me um, permission to really lean into like heroic deeds and that I can live my own life like a hero, which I think is really awesome. Um, where can people find you? There's three more of these bad boys. Yes, that's that's my cross to bear. I now have to write a book a year for the next three years. Um, and it's, it's like, it's much more complicated, right? Like, so obstacle, ego, and stillness were three 
are part of a trilogy, but it was not intentionally a trilogy. Right. So I didn't have to think about like, well, how does this connect to this? And so it's it's been it's been certainly a challenge. But I love if you're not challenging yourself, if you're not getting better at what you're doing, why are you doing this? Sort of my belief. But um, yeah, so the next three books will come out. This one is out probably by the time people watch this. And then uh, I do a daily email about stoicism totally for free at dailystoic.com. And then uh, videos about stoicism every day at youtube.com slash dailystoic. And then I'm at Ryan Holiday pretty much everywhere. Love it. Courage is calling everybody. And speaking of things that are calling to you, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.